Hello everyone and welcome to the EVN Disrupt podcast. My name is Nejda Tsaturyan. I'm the editor of the creative tech section here at EVN Report. My guest today was Manana Hakopian. Manana is the founder and CEO of DataPoint Armenia, an organization that is working to accelerate the development of data science in Armenia. We spoke about Manana's experience as a student at UWC Dilijan and how she discovered data science through her studies at Berkeley and Harvard. We also discussed the importance of data-driven culture and how DataPoint is working to bring that culture to Armenia. Thank you for listening. Manana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Manana, I want to start with a little bit of your background. So uh, a lot of our guests in the past have gone to some of these specialty schools in Armenia, uh, mostly FISMA, I would say. Um, and it seems like there's some sort of special sauce at FISMA and the rigor of the science and technology curriculum there, or something about that environment that has created a lot of uh, really brilliant founders in Armenia. You also went to one of these, I guess I would say sort of specialty schools, UWC Dilijan. I think a lot of people have heard of UWC and their campus in Dilijan, but few know much about it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what your experience was like there and, and what was the best thing that you got out of there? I'm glad you asked this question because I love UWC Dilijan. It's the place I would say that I started dreaming bigger and knowing that my dreams can actually be a reality. UWC Dilijan is a very special place. Not only because it's a specialty school and it's pretty, it has like amazing campus, it's in beautiful diligence. It also has this um, amazing energy that enables the young students to be the people that they want to be, to get to be really motivated and um, go do bigger things. Um, personally, I went to Norhajun's high school before going to UWC Dilijan and studying well was always a priority. I was getting good grades and everything was going well in my education. But a change that happened um, when I moved to UWC Dilijan was the liberation of mind in a way and the um, realization that as an Armenian, I'm not the only culture in the world. There are like so many other cultures. They're so, they're so different. There are so many different people. Everyone has their good and bad, bad side. Like um, it was a place where I started understanding that I'm a small piece of the world, but if I really want, I can make bigger changes. Mm-hmm. So. And, uh, I think one thing a lot of people don't know is that only, I think something like 10% of the student body at UWC Dilijan is Armenian. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. So yeah. the school itself is very international. Only 10% is Armenian and then 90% is very, very diverse. Um, it's not that we have only students from this region, even we have students from coming from different countries in Africa, different countries in Asia, different countries in South America. So um, very, very diverse. We have all sorts of languages that are being spoken in the in the school and when you enter cafeteria it's actually really fun because you might catch like armenian table but because people are speaking armenian then you will right. catch spanish table and um it's right. like a very very interesting place to be yeah was there something uh, at the school other than just the diversity that uh, really enabled you in your words to to be much more open-minded thinker or I think you said it liberated you in some ways is there something that can be replicated in the average Armenian public school in the country 
Um, interesting question. I would say yes. There are some things that can be replicated. Uh, actually, two things that come to my mind directly. The first thing was the curriculum of the school is the International Bachelor Curriculum (IB), and it's a very well known curriculum in the world. So when you study that, most of the universities abroad uh, will recognize it, will give you a good pass if you have good grades and good work there. But what I am suggesting that can be uh, adopted in the school is not directly the curriculum, but the principles that are lying in the roots of the curriculum. So all the subjects that we study in IB, they really push you to think about the whys and not just learn, take the facts the way they are written in the textbook. For example, history, the way it is being taught in Armenian schools, as far as I'm concerned, is about learning the events, when they happened, how they happened, who did them. So it's very factual and um, this happened, that happened. Um, there is not, they're not pushing in the schools in Armenia to think why it happened, what was the politics behind, what would happen if it the event did not happen, what were the major players and why they were doing these things. So all these questions that really push students to do a step uh, forward and think about the root cause are really making the students critical thinkers for yeah. the entirety of their lives. And then the second thing that I thought of could be, there is something special about living in campus and at the school and having your library and community and having all the activities. We had student-led clubs, probably like 30 to 40, and every year people are making new clubs. And it's all because we live in the same place. And yes, there is learning that is happening in the room, in the classroom. But there is so much learning that is happening out of classroom, just from each other. People are telling about their hometowns, their favorite yeah. food. They're telling about their favorite authors. Like yeah. so many things are happening out of classroom. Yeah. So the, you you said a few really interesting things that I want to touch on. It seems like one of the biggest things that I, I hear this a lot from people um, about Armenia's education system is the need to implement like really strong critical thinking skills into the curriculum. Um, and uh, it seems like that's something that you really got at, at UWC. I had a friend in undergrad who said that you could solve most of the world problems by making philosophy mandatory through first to 12th grade. And I don't know how much how true that is, but it, it seems like at least some philosophy classes would would benefit us all. Um, and then the, I personally philosophy at high school. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, the the campus life, I think, is, is super important, too. Uh, something a lot of people might know might not know is, for instance, in the U.S., it's actually mandatory to live on campus often for at least the first two years of uh, of college, because it really it really integrates you into campus life in a way that I think schools outside of the U.S. don't. Um, so, for example, I'm from Canada, uh, but I, I did go to school in the U.S. Um, for a bit, and it's so different the campus life and the campus culture because most Canadian schools are commuter schools. So people live off campus and come to campus every day and then go back home. But uh, but when I was studying in the U.S., the community feel and the the activities that the, the campus culture brought were just as valuable as uh, what you learned in the lecture halls. Um, for instance, there, there was one program at, at the University of Rochester while I was there called the Key Scholar Program. It was a fifth-year program. So after graduating from 
your four-year undergrad, you were allowed to stay on campus for a fifth year free of charge. Uh, you wouldn't pay tuition and you would embark on some entrepreneurship uh, project and uh, you would build out either a business or some sort of organization and you would have all of the campus's resources uh, available to you for that. And I, I think aspects like that were just as important for my for my education as the stuff that you learned in, in lecture halls. And I think it, it would be great to see more integration of programs like that in Armenia's education system. Also, just to add a little bit about living on campus, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to live away from my family, even though I was missing them a lot. I think it really formed me as a, into an independent person, yeah. um, to a person who can leave and even like perform the daily course just on her own yeah. um i'm seeing like a lot of people in my surroundings who are really tied to the uh to their family and it sometimes it seems that they would really benefit if they were out of home for some time right it cuts you off from that dependence uh, yeah the home structure at some point in your life you you have to do that <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, then you you went off to UC Berkeley in, in California to study there. How did you come about uh, picking, I believe you studied data science and, and economics. How did you end up studying data science? How did you get interested in that, in that subject area? I have a whole interesting story about this. Do you want the okay. short version or the long version? I want the long version. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then we should start from UWC Diligent. Awesome. Okay. So when I went to Diligent, I I had the opportunity to study economics and my mom is originally an economist. So I was exposed to some concepts like growing up. And when I started studying economics, because it was application of math in real life, I was just amazed and I loved economics. I just you can't imagine the first class I did demand and supply curve. My my mind was blowing just how can two lines represent so much, and I was admiring the subject. By the second year, when I was applying to universities, I was sure that I was going to pursue a PhD in economics. Don't ask me why, how. I would just I had a passion for that, yeah. and my dream school was London School of Economics, just because like my favorite ec economists came out of that school. <laughs> Anyways, fast forward, um, I applied to UC Berkeley by chance. And uh, by saying by chance, it's one of my father's friends did physics PhD and he was coming back from UC Berkeley. He just came to our place. They had a conversation when I was applying. And then my, my mom called me and she was like, do you want to apply to UC Berkeley? And I was like, let me check it out. Uh, I was like, yeah, I'm still, I, I have some time. I'm, I can apply. And something interesting about this story is that well, we had a university counselor at school. And every time I would ask him whether I should apply or not, he would say, mm, maybe you should consider that um, you, you will manage to deadline or not, or uh, is this a good school or not? When I said, should I apply to UC Berkeley? He was like, yes, you should. And I don't know why. Yeah. And then I applied to Berkeley and I realized that for Berkeley, the school does not send grades from the school. It's like all self-reported. Mm -hmm. So my university counselor was like, yeah, like there is no deadline issue. There is no time management okay. issue because you're just all self-reporting. So right. I applied in two days because the application deadline was the day after that my mom called. And 
I was not hoping for that. Forgot about school. My dream was LSE. I got to LSE. I got to Berkeley. And while I was waiting for scholarship from LSE, I got scholarship from UWC Diligence Foundation. Super grateful to that foundation for making my uh, education possible at UC Berkeley. And I appear to be in UC Berkeley. I'm still studying economics. Too passionate. There is no major in data science. Yeah. No one is studying data science yet. What year was this? This was in 2016. Okay. UC Berkeley didn't have um, data science major yet. Yeah. Um, they had some classes, but not a department or major. And um, something about about Berkeley is that like majors in Berkeley are very math heavy. Like yeah. even political science at Berkeley requires you to take a quantitative course, which is combination of stats, math, and coding. Right. And economics is very math heavy at this point it's like stem subject yeah. at a very so i was taking a lot of statistics mathematics courses was very happy with my life and because everyone around me was coding at berkeley it's just a, everyone at silicon valley is coding and talking about startups yeah. i took a coding class and something about the coding class was that it was very challenging i have never coded before but like it was not too easy for me for sure, yeah. but it was challenging and interesting. Yeah. When I finished that class, that course, I was like, hmm, I want to take another one just because I don't want to not code. Like I'm so used to having this challenge in my daily life. I want to keep going. Yeah. So I started taking the series of the computer programming courses and um, at Berkeley, they are very popular and they're like horror stories among like around them. There are 1,400 people taking those courses yeah. at, at a time. Big, big classrooms. They are uh, cutting 20% of the class. Like a lot of horror stories. They're super challenging. Yeah. And people would ask me, why are you taking this course? You don't need it for me, for your major. I would say I'm taking for fun. And they would yeah. be like, you're mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, another thing that happened like so I'm still very focused on economics. I even had a like a professor who I asked to advise me for PhD track. Yeah. Something happened in my second year. I emailed one of my data science professors. At that point, I took a class which was data science hundred, uh, like a foundational data science course. I'm emailing one of the professors and asking if I can teach with them. And I have, I'm just doing it just because. Everyone's competitive at Berkeley. We're all yeah. doing these things. And I'm, I'm not hearing back for two months. And mm -hmm. then two months later, he's emailing back saying, yes, you did good in class. I know you. Come, come by. So, so fast forward. What? Fast forward, yes, I started teaching data science at yes. Berkeley. <laughs> Second course, is there like, there's a lower division course. I was taking, I was teaching the first course in upper division. And I took it since data science was forming as we were passing by the time. Um, I took the course when it was being taught first time and I started teaching from the second iteration of the course. The way they set it up is that there were two professors teaching the course every semester, one from computer science department, one from data science department. And every semester they would rotate, new professors would come. I taught this course every single semester until I graduated Berkeley. And because of that, I started meeting a lot of CS and statistics professors and knowing them in very personal terms. Yeah. And 
the more I knew them, the more I got into data science because all the conversations around me started being about data science and yeah. they would recommend new courses. They would recommend their friend professors who are teaching these things. Yeah. At some point I was at the like end of my third year and they opened the data science major and I looked at the requirements. I had everything. Like you could there was a no-brainer to just apply for right. data science as a major. Right. right. My fourth year, I was like, I think I like data science at this point. Yeah. And in like economics, everything was about data science in my life. Yeah. And um, something, because I was not feeling that data science was my major thing, because there was always economics, my, uh, that was my major thing. I had the feeling that I should do a little more studying and I applied for a master's degree in data science. Very nice. And uh, you went off to Harvard to do your, your master's in data science, um, which uh, you probably graduated at this point. Yes. So yeah. it was a it was a very um, interesting and twisted period. It was I graduated when COVID hit the world. Yeah. So in, in spring of 2020, I was deciding actually whether I should work or study okay. and I had the option to work or study but um, Harvard was very fast by responding that they um, they were welcoming me so I didn't know how the world will be I was like studying is always a safe option yeah. <laughs> did you at least get to really experience and be at Harvard and enjoy Harvard or were you remote mostly throughout the time the first year uh, so Another thing that happened at Harvard is that the first year of Harvard, it was remote, but I went to Harvard because I got a teaching position at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And for that, they required me to be on campus. Okay. And I traveled to Harvard and I was there. I was I still had the community. There were a lot of people at Harvard, but um, I, we were not going into in-person classes. I mean, all the classes were via Zoom. Right. Um, but the second year was fully in-person. In-person. So, that's great. Yeah. I would say I did experience Harvard quite okay. a bit. Yeah, that's that, that's great. I had a lot. I have a lot of friends that younger friends who um, they were just going through college as COVID hit, and you know, looking back at it, they really lost. I mean, three out of their eight college semesters uh, to to the pandemic, and I feel bad for them because it's it's such a formative and an important experience. But uh, I'm glad you got to at least enjoy most of your time at Harvard. <laughs> I think one of the other things that's so important is that schools like Berkeley gave you the opportunity to not be so um, on such a narrow track. Like, I feel like often uh, I, I don't have much experience with the Armenian education system, but from what I hear, there's there often aren't too many opportunities to take coursework outside of your faculty. And that, I think that sort of puts people into a box and doesn't allow them to uh, um, to try something else and maybe then switch their majors. Yeah. yeah, that's something I think about quite often because if there was not that uh, free form of like you can explore whatever you want, the first year is for exploring, just like seeing what are your interests. I would never come across like taking computer science classes or like that many data science classes that would not explore that on my own. And especially choosing a profession when you're 16, 17 is such a hard and responsible task like you're stuck with that profession yeah. basically for the 
rest of your life or at least like for four years in yeah. university yeah, i wish they like open it up a little bit more yeah. in Armenia so that people can have the opportunity to explore and then declare their professions absolutely yeah i think it's way too much to ask of a 17 year old kid to decide what they're going to do for the rest of their life from that point especially when they don't have experience and in, in trying different fields and the American education system, uh, the higher education system, I think is great at doing that and really allowing people to explore uh, their paths and their opportunities. Um, so let's get to data science. Tell me a little bit about what are the what are the important aspects of building really strong data culture and and, and data science culture and ecosystems? What are the, the positive impacts that this can have? A lot of positive impacts. But I should start like how to build, where to build, sure. like how we get there. So for building a data culture, I think it's really, really important to make a shift in mindset as a person of why the data culture might be useful. And the data culture is useful in a country just because um, right now we do have a lot of computational power and we are like sophisticated enough to process a lot of information and we are able to make decisions that are fact-based rather than intuition or like um yes. just desire based yeah. and um the experience showed in many countries in many companies that when you're making fact-based data-driven decisions you are uh, reaching the goals that you have set in more effective ways. Um, now coming back of how to create this data culture, let's say the shift is made. Let's say people now are more acceptable about like, okay, data-driven decisions are good. The first thing in my opinion is to get data. And I'm saying this from my experience. When we started Data Point Armenia, we had we gathered this group of people who were really excited about um, implementing a data-driven culture, like making steps. But the main bottleneck is not having data. If you do not have data, it doesn't matter how much you're talking about it, how good your intentions are, you're not going to be able to implement and show whatever you were talking about. Right. And in Armenia, um, unfortunately, we do not have that much data. Uh, whatever data we have is not very granular. Like... Um, I know and I recognize the good work that is being done by all the data collectors. There are NGOs who are collecting data. There is There are international uh, organizations that are collecting data in the field. There's the Statistics Institute. It's just comparing to the world standards right now, we are um, lagging behind right. in that aspect. So people have an understanding of what we mean when, when, we, when we talk about data collection. Can you speak a little bit about what type of data uh, Armenia should be collecting that it's not right now? Yeah, so I'll start from the um, economic indicators. And um, Armenia is collecting economic indicators. There is some data. It's just not granular. For example, we wanted to do before after war impact analysis. And we realized that the only data we're getting is in quarterly granularity, which means that um, you can do analysis like if you wait only, if you have like two quarters before the war and then two quarters, that will give you like four data points for each economic indicator and yeah. you won't be able to really like work around it. So that's one example. Uh, I would say like getting a lot of um, data on agriculture, yeah. like um, data that is um, not about like um, how many pounds of 
great post predict. I don't think we have that, but um, having it for each specific uh, fruit, vegetable, having the temperatures that are synced with that, having just like registering all the things that we can later on find patterns and yeah. yes, we can implement precise agriculture like method. Another thing is that we can collect data in media and whenever I'm saying collect data in media, like media is there but a lot of like armenian media is not being fact checked and mm. like you will see like either visualizations that are not making sense or like you'll see um numbers in the media that are not fully fact checked like all of these things if there is a systematic way of data collection i'm sure we will will have data scientists who will be able to use the tools to fact check or like yeah. um, make models or and um, start working on that data mm. Yeah. And even even just in, in terms of media, I think building a data-driven culture when it comes to just data journalism and data reporting would be a fantastic step for Armenia. Like more people to more journalists to start doing data-driven this would be fantastic. Yeah. Another thing is that collecting data about cities is like um another like good thing. Like in the world, the concept of smart cities is getting uh, bigger and bigger of like how to organize cities that is more effective like the traffic is more effective even like um, where to put the trash bins like yeah. all these questions can be like if there is data like it can be optimized easily right yeah okay so the first step of the pipeline is to have strong data collection and then what comes next and then after the strong uh, data collection once there is data there are many other steps of um, who is going to analyze, I mean, not even analyze, who is going to clean the data, who is right. going to analyze data, who is going to set the priorities of what we are going to find from the data, uh, why are we going to use this model or not, yeah. so like data modeling is another thing. But I guess like all these like um, steps that I just said are the more fun things about it. I think after the data collection, the most important thing is having a good data architecture in the country and like how we're keeping this data and right. who is having the access and who is not having the access. Because I want to say that as a data scientist, I also know that data can be used for bad purposes. Right. We want it or not, data-driven decision-making is good, but when data is being manipulated, it can really impact many people in very bad ways so yeah. that's why i'm saying i would say like having a good data architecture and like policies in the country of how do we go about using the data and maintaining the data will be a very very important step yeah absolutely once we have the the data collection capabilities and the architecture in place um i guess the next thing that comes is really having the capacity to of people to actually work with this data. Um, some people might know, but I think during Obama's time, America actually instituted a chief data scientist of the United mm -hmm. States um, to a government position. Um, and the, that person's role is to design a lot of the things that you're talking about, um, what data is collected, uh, how we're working with that data, what, what we're studying with that data. Um, so through DataPoint Armenia, are you guys doing any capacity building? Are you guys doing any training, education programs? Or? I'm glad you asked that question because right now we're focused on that. Okay. Um, we just launched this year the 
our Cayman's program that we're really, really excited about. And we spend a lot of time thinking and designing it. Um, let me tell you in a few words what the Cayman's is. Um, and I'll also tell about the name. Um, so K-Minds is, we're calling it a career development program. And the main audience for K-Minds are the novice data scientists or the people who have built up skills that can make them into successful data scientists, but for some reason they are not yet. Mm -hmm. And let me give you a few examples. There are people who are studying financial math mathematics. They know how to code because they taught themselves what they'd learned in the university. They have really good mathematical intuition. They know statistics. They have all the core knowledge pieces that are required for being a critical thinking data scientist, but they need this boost of actually uh, think of actually like entering the field as a data scientist. Right. So think about it as an internship in a more supervised manner. And a wise supervised manner because uh, the program is designed to have three main parts. The first part is the active learning sessions. Those are, you can think of them as a curriculum where the cohort or like the K-Men's team is uh, learning uh, data science concepts. But the idea is not to have a university or like a school setting where they're coming and we're teaching them things. It's more about, first of all, they have the background, but it's more about, we assign them a lot of materials. We have data camp courses, we're um, cooperating with data camp. So everything that is online, there's so much online uh, materials right now in data science. So there's a lot of things happening online that they can study. Right. When they come to active learning sessions, we push them to be critical about what they're what they studied of and what the data science concepts are. So we start like from question and answer and we push the conversation to edge cases of the models when they fail, why they work, why they do not work. What are the assumptions that get into it? What are the things that get into the coding? For example, right now, like every data science um, algorithm has a package that is pre-written that comes um, like, you know, one line in a right. code if you're writing an algorithm or like a model and um i personally think that the data scientists who just write that one line and think that they build a model they're pretty dangerous for companies or like for the model building because they do not see how many assumptions go into the source code they're like if you open the source code it's like pages and lines of lines of code and there are so many decisions that get into it that the data scientist who is critical thinker needs to know that these things are there and they have the freedom to change depending right. on the task they're solving. So that's the main objective of the active learning. The second part of the program is the project because we really think that as a data scientist, you need to work with real data to get something out of it. Um, and we're cooperating with CoinStats. CoinStats is a not a startup anymore, because that is our tech company based in Armenia. They are maintaining and offering um, the cryptocurrency um, management portfolio. Right. And um, with their data, they've agreed to give data and task, and our cohort is solving a problem for them and um, getting a real life experience. And the third part of this is the career development itself. And what we mean by that is we get mentors from the industry, mentors from the academia, 
we get uh, people who are really good at resume building and we'll tell them how to write resumes, yeah. people who will train them how to talk through the interviews. And we might be a little biased by American standards because um, we studied there, that's kind of what we know. Uh, hopefully um, that's for the good and not for the bad. But yes, we're super excited. I was able to convince one of my Harvard professors to be a like, mentor. We have um, um, the Armenian founders who come and tell like how to do this and that. We have yeah. lead data scientists, Armenian tech companies who are sharing like what it, it is to be a data scientist in a tech company. So yes, the, these three parts, we really hope that this intensive like summer program will give them base mm-hmm. to enter data science field. So this, you guys have cohorts of this running right now, this summer? Yes. So we have right now five people that are the cohorts that we chose. And I can talk a little about like how we choose the cohort if sure. if that will be interesting to any of the listeners. To be honest, we didn't go too big this time because we wanted to have a good first program with small cohort and do everything in a way, right in a right way. Um, so we had around 100 applicants and we chose five people. And the way we chose these people was um, trying to choose people who have good foundation. So the foundation was like they need to be like either be good at coding or math or stats or like three at the same time. Um, but we also wanted them to be very motivated and wanted to see some leadership skills. And the reason is we do envision to like for them to become data scientists, but we also would love to see them in leadership positions and drive a, a movement or like a company that is data driven and yeah. serving as an example. We would love people who would uh, would have motivation and like ambition to kind of talk about the concept they're learning around. Uh, so like other people can be inspired as well. And honestly, just pulling this type of program that is online because um, most of the specialists that are working it are like in different countries. Right. You really need to have motivation to wake up at 8 a.m. every day. Right. And do, they are waking up at 8 a.m. every day yeah. for like the <laughs> program sessions. Yeah. Um, so yes, we were like really like little scared slash excited, nervous, uh, whether we'll like catch these five people just from resumes and interviews. But when I met them, I was so excited because these people are awesome. Like they're yeah. brilliant. You should sit down this day. <laughs> I would love to. I think it's important when uh, when when something is still early in an ecosystem, such as like data-driven culture, it's it's you're right. It's super important that those people are really enthusiastic and capable of taking on leadership roles because they will often go on and become ambassadors for that for that change that you're trying to implement. Um, and then if you don't have those people in in higher up roles, then you can't really implement that culture that. Uh, that you're looking to do exactly sometimes i jokingly tell them that we are building a team that is going to conquer the world (laughs) (laughs) at least that's our opinion (laughs) that's fantastic what about like at the the university levels right now in armenia um i know aua has data science programs i think both at the undergrad and master's levels i think ysu has a program that's in conjunction with istc if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. 
who's a master's program in data science. How do you how do you evaluate this? Is there anything that you think needs to be changed or improved upon? I think Slavonic University has now a program as well. And there are some programs that are not exactly data science, but um, have components that will make it very data science-y. Like, yeah. I think you can do actual mathematics. And you, yeah. if you want, you can like study a lot of data science-y things. To be honest, I do not have enough data to evaluate any of the uh, <laughs> programs that are in Armenia. Right. I can only uh, say like opinions from whatever I talked uh, yeah. to, like whoever I talked to. Just saying, I'm really, really happy these programs exist and there are people yeah. who are like putting effort and like pushing this forward. I can't tell like comment anything about the university level. I we just did uh, market research before starting the program and talked to companies in Armenia. And the I, the overall feel we're getting right now about uh, like the data science uh, field um, from the company, like tech company point of view is that there are some companies like big software based or like application based companies who really need good data scientists. Right. They are going, they are growing very fast and they are willing to take data scientists who are uh, well-prepared to get to work and just start working. But uh, since they're growing very fast, they do not have the, like really the time to do a lot of internships or like take too many beginner level data scientists. Right. And the way the field is right now, since the programs are new, there are a lot of new coming data scientists right. and um, a few um, very, very good, like brilliant, like experienced data scientists. And they're like almost none or like very rare data scientists who are in the middle like right. junior to senior level yeah this is a common problem across armenia's entire tech sector that a lot of the companies are still so early that they really can only afford to have senior talent uh, and they haven't yet been able to build teams of juniors and interns that work underneath the seniors um, yeah. I, I think it's a it's a natural problem for any young ecosystem to have but um we need to get to a point where uh, junior engineers and, and interns especially have opportunities to really grow in their in their roles at some of these bigger startups um, and I, I yeah. think we're probably getting there but uh, but uh, but it's still tough to come by let's talk about some of the some of the work that you guys have have done at data point in terms of bringing that data-driven culture to Armenia through some projects that you've implemented um, I know you guys have done prepared a couple of reports can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So um, I'm going to tell like why DataPoint Armenia came to life. Sure. Um, saying like what were the phases we went through and what we produced. So there was a summer when um, I came back to Armenia and I was telling my aunts, cousins, I'm going to be a data scientist. And there was this why effect, I would say, in their face. They're like, why are you becoming a data scientist? <laughs> What is that? Will you be able to sustain yourself for the rest of your life if you're a data scientist? And um, it was very um, foreign to me to have this type of uh, reaction to the to the thing that I'm I'm a data scientist because yeah. at Berkeley everyone is talking about data science. Yeah. It's like topic for lunch. ML is a topic for dinner. Right. People go to these <laughs> and they talk about AI. Right. Um, just like everywhere yeah. and saying to someone that I'm data scientist and getting like 
Hmm? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that question mark face uh, was not the best thing that I was expecting to see in my motherland. And uh, the story goes that I was not the only one. And there were like other Armenians in the same university, like my friends, they would have the same problem. They were still like struggling to explain what is data science to our grandmas and grandfathers. But the idea of why we should like start data point was um, let's start a like initiative. It was not a nonprofit organization back then. Let's start an initiative that will be community-based. Oh, also one more thing. There was a um, one of our co-founders made a tech trip to Armenia and he really wanted to meet like a data science association or something like that yeah. to meet all the data scientists. And he didn't find this place to go and meet all the data scientists. So yeah. he reached out to me. And if this was the like culmination of like many, many things that happened during that summer. And we decided to make this initiative where it will be community-based. We'll like reach out to many like Armenian data scientists around the world and not even our, only in Armenia, like we'll discover the world. Like right. we'll talk to people, uh, we'll... Um, and the first thing we were doing and this is not a joke, we're making, like we, were, we would go to like databases in Armenia, like in, from the Statistics Institute, this and that would try to get data and make visualizations or infographics that are very acceptable by like larger population of Armenians. Like during the Valentine, we got the number of marriages. We yeah. plotted it as a visualization um, per region. And we would like, we started asking like, what is the most uh, lovable region in Armenia? Just like yeah. to make it trendy, to make people talk about data science. Yeah. That's what we were doing in the beginning. But as more and more people joined us, so the community started growing, we, re we realized that the visualizations that we were posting um, are not the most actionable thing to do. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, the conversation and the hype about data science started growing as we were doing it. So in a way, it was like good timings like we're doing, but we wanted to do something else. So the next thing we started doing was uh, organizing the initiative into committees. And we had data and health, like data and economics, data and this. So like many things like, you know, like data itself, most of the time cannot be used because like data is coming from a field and it's like data is very applied thing that's yeah. why our committees would be data science applied with some field yeah. and we started like enrolling people who were interested in those fields like doing research where they were using data and started doing some projects and some projects that you might have seen uh, coming out, we did Alzheimer's uh, report, we did like a health crisis report um, after the war. Um, we, we did um, the Z, like, report that we called ZIF, but it was the social media astroturfing report during the war. Um, we, we had a dashboard of economic yeah. uh, indicators of the this region. So a few like successful projects came out of this phase where we were like working in committees and um, trying to do projects that are like for Armenia, but also were keep the main like driving factor of these projects was keeping the community together because having all these people, bringing these people in is good, but what are these people going to do now right. they're like, with you? Like doing these projects was making people to meet each other every week to just like know each other, like make friendships and 
just like start this network. You guys were all just volunteer data scientists. We were just volunteer data scientists doing right. it voluntarily, doing it via, via Zoom, um, yeah. spending a lot of time together just doing data science and like talking. Yeah. And then um, as the initial as the organization was growing, we also got that that was a point when we realized that we we're getting organized, that we applied and got a nonprofit status. So we're now like an official nonprofit organization. And then at some point we realized that yes, we're doing research now. And for research, we need a lot of data. We do not have that much data. And um, we would love to have impact on Armenia directly. And we might, when we're writing reports, there are people who are like reading. Um, there are people who are citing, we got cited by Forbes. Um, but what is happening is, is it actually like very impactful in Armenia? Right. Yeah. And that's the place where we took a step back we kind of started reorganizing ourselves and our objectives. And we decided that we should probably start having a service or a product that can be consumed by Armenians. Mm -hmm. And um, K-Minds was the- First iteration of that. First iteration of the right. place we are at. Um, okay, so uh, in terms of like what you guys plan on doing for the future that is, that is impactful, do you have some other projects in mind? I think right now for the short run, uh, we'd love to scale K-Minds because I do not want to get ahead of right. the end of the program because we're doing like a weekly reports assessments so right. we can have data to base all, all of these things. We're data scientists, everything we're is data, data to approach. <laughs> but I think so far it's going pretty well yeah. and um, we want to scale it so more people will have the opportunity yeah. I think it will still not be like 300 people oh, becoming right. part of like K-Mind. It will still be pretty selective, but we want to uh, cooperate with more Armenian tech companies to get their data because this cooperation with the tech companies is also useful for just for them to know the incoming talent, for us to just communicate our vision, yeah. the data-driven data approaches. So I think the short run goals is like co to cooperate with more Armenian tech companies and scale yeah. the K-Mind. Some long run um, goals, I think longer run goals, would love to have an office in Armenia. Right now we're like virtual and for teleporting education virtually, it's successful. The COVID showed us that we can, yeah. but I think doing more in-person events and um, meetups, I guess, with, conferences yeah. and other things we will need to have like an in-person office yeah. at some point. Have you guys thought at all about public sector cooperation, sort of in the same way that maybe you guys have a program with CoinStats, um, to have a program with maybe the Ministry of Economy or the Ministry of the Environment, for instance, and bring data-driven culture there? Or is that a different uh, challenge? No, we thought, and at some point, we decided and we, we tried to pursue that a little bit. The only thing with the um, government-based sectors is that uh, the bureaucracy is a little more yeah. than um, with tech companies. Yeah. And I think once we know that the K-Mines is uh, running smoothly in all aspects other than the cooperation bureaucracy, we would, be, uh, we would have the capacity to take on that task as well. 
So our resources are not unlimited. We're trying our best to allocate our time and resources um, in the most efficient way. Because um, one thing about data point team is that everyone is excited about doing something good for Armenia. Um, And that's their desire motivation of being in data point. Uh, But everyone is um, either full-time studying in very, very good universities that are very demanding um, or full-time working um, in companies in the U.S., which are uh, quite demanding as well. (laughs) So that's why we have to be really efficient with whatever resource we're putting. Right. No, that's that's completely understandable. And I think it's, it's important that you guys touched upon, like, you know, really fitting the initiatives within the, the current capacity, because I often see a lot of initiatives start with, you know, really good intentions, but maybe underestimate just the, the amount of effort that this kind of stuff takes and, and unfortunately falling apart because of that. So uh, before we before we wrap up, um, let's talk about maybe one case study that uh, would would make people really understand the, the importance and the impact that data driven culture can have. Do you have a do you have a favorite example that that you like to use when you're selling people on the importance of data science? There are a couple examples that are coming to my mind. One thing, that, one story I I love uh, to tell to people when it comes to like saying like what are the some use cases of data science if they do not know or like if I want to explain if, what I I'll be able to do. I like to tell people um, things that are they meet often during their daily life and I go about saying so remember that dress you were talking about two days ago and you saw your Facebook recommendations that's uh, uh, let me tell you those are this is the work of data scientists or like um the models that were like building the behind the behind the screens and they're like I'm like, yes, because all your data is owned by Facebook and Facebook is selling your data to advertisement agencies and they exactly know which group wants to buy what. And And then I'm like, you remember when during uh, around your dad's birthday, you started getting recommendation of watches. It's because they also know that it's your dad's birthday and it freaks them out. uh, But it also shows exactly what we are doing behind the screens. Um, Another fun example I like to give is that in the US, the supermarkets are um, organized sometimes in funny ways. And sometimes like people won't notice if like someone does not tell them, but there there will be like the toothbrush or like toothpaste will be next to Oreo cookies. And it doesn't make sense. Why would these two things be together? But apparently, or like toothbrush will be next to coffee. Right. And it's because all these big supermarkets, they have data scientists who are analyzing customer behavior and they know that uh, coffee drinkers buy a lot of toothbrush or like they change the toothbrush like often, <laughs> right. you know, like placing them together to maximize the profit. Right. Once like you start explaining, it um, becomes like very clear what is yeah. happening. Like, yeah. And other things that are a little more serious and like more impactful than the toothbrush and the coffee <laughs> or like the Facebook recommendations. Right. Recently, one of the Nobel Nobel Prize laureates in economics uh, was awarded a Nobel Nobel Prize because of their like field work in development economics. Yeah. And field work of the in development economics and all the models, there were um 
using, if I'm not mistaken, one of the causal model models of, I think they were using different diff, if I'm not mistaken, but they were using some econometric economi model, which I would say is the grandfather ancestor of the modern machine learning. Uh -huh. They came up with it uh, way earlier than machine learning was a hype. And yeah. basically it's like a model that is like telling them what is causing what. And um, the whole process of that is data science. And yes, I should tell about their work. Development economic worlds, the works right now are like very, very interesting. They started like 10 years, 15 years ago, like doing some studies. Um, specifically, the study I like is the one where uh, they were trying to understand whether to give money in small households to women or men. Yeah. And they were tracking of if they give the assistance to women or men, uh, how it will impact the generations and the household in general for years. And that's data science because every month they would go and collect data on this household. Right. And then like after 10 years, they analyzed. And then actually they found that giving money to women is better for the family because apparently women are investing the money more on children than men are doing. Right. It's a fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I think we can talk about uh, case studies like this for, for hours. So we'll have to invite you on again to, uh, to do that <laughs> in the future. But before we wrap up, um, Manana, tell us a little bit about what your hopes are for for data point Armenia for the next five to 10 years? What are your goals with the organization? I want to say big goals, but I also don't want to say. <laughs> um, <Explain>. <laughs> I would say this. I really hope that Caymans will be scaled, yeah. we'll have physical space, and we'll have research center. Because yeah. I do think Armenia now needs research. I do not know which like subfield, but I really hope it will be very, very specialized research center. Do you mean research in terms of data science research or a team of data scientists doing research on, like bringing a data approach to doing research on various uh, fields in Armenia? I'm thinking of data science applied in a very, very, very specific subfield in Armenia yeah. that like very narrowed field, but um, not just doing research and producing like articles or recommendations, like doing research and getting academic about it. Probably like even trying to do inventions or uh, scholarly findings. That would be fantastic. Um, okay, Mananajan, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us and tell, tell people where they can find out more about DataPoint Armenia online. Um, you can find out in our website. Um, most of the major things are there are like LinkedIn and Facebook um, because like we'll introduce our cohort, our team, the new events, like the talks, like anything we're doing, you can find our website directly. Awesome. So that's datapoint.am. Uh, datapoint.am is the website and the datapoint Armenia are the handles for Instagram and Facebook. Facebook. Okay. Manajan, thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me.